You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with David Sklansky, who is a professor of law at Stanford University, also the author of uh, this book, A Pattern of Violence, How the Law Classifies Crimes and What It Means for Justice. Welcome, David. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, this book covers a lot of ground, and it discusses this notion of violence, right? How we think about violence and how we've thought about it over the years and how it's become a really important category, not just in law, but also in culture. And when you start off the book, you highlight that we in America, at least, we go around with this distinction between sort of violent crime and nonviolent crime. And with all the talk about reducing incarceration and maybe pulling back from the more, more punitive aspects of our penal system, that discussion is usually limited to what we think of as nonviolent crimes. And anybody who proposes that we get soft on violent crimes is essentially committing political suicide or is viewed as in some way irrational or defective or against law and order. And yet this boundary between violent and nonviolent, which I think a lot of people don't really question, you look at it carefully and it's kind of strange. It's not as coherent perhaps as people might think. So I guess what is it about violence most people think that violence is somehow worse than nonviolence, but hey, I'd much rather get punched in the face than have my life savings <laughs> stolen by some con artist. Yeah. So the book is about the way that ideas about violence structure criminal law and how we think about what the criminal law is supposed to do. And we tend to think, as you've suggested, that it's kind of obvious violent crimes are the worst kinds of crimes, violent criminals are the worst kinds of criminals, and reform efforts should concentrate on making the law less harsh for nonviolent criminals, but not for violent criminals. And all of that assumes that we know what it means for something to be violent, and that there's a clear and sharp boundary between what's violent and what's not violent, and that nonviolent behavior is categorically not as serious as violent behavior. And all of those assumptions deserve to be questioned because we don't make them all the time and they don't hold up well if you push hard at them, which isn't to say that there's no difference between violent and nonviolent offenses. There is. And I'm not arguing in the book that we should stop paying attention to the difference between violent crimes and nonviolent crimes. What I am arguing is that the boundary between those two categories is far less clear than we think it is, and that we're inconsistent about when we treat violence as categorically worse and across the board worse than other kinds of behavior. And we need to question these assumptions if we're going to make any serious progress on unwinding mass incarceration, because a huge number of the people who are currently incarcerated are incarcerated for offenses that are categorized as violent. And if we released everybody from prison that's in prison for a, what's supposed to be a nonviolent offense, we would bring our incarceration rate down 
but down to the range of countries like Rwanda or Cuba. If we want to get down to where we were in the 1960s, to where most democratic countries that we'd want to compare ourselves are, we need to start thinking about people who are in prison for offenses categorized as violence. I also think that there are other areas where we don't pay enough attention to the distinction between violence and nonviolent um, conduct. And the most important of those has to do with policing, where the law and rules that have developed for police misconduct don't treat violent police misconduct as categorically worse or really as even different than nonviolent police misconduct. And I think that's a mistake. Now, to be clear, the distinction between violent and nonviolent is a legal category, right? And it's referenced in a lot of different areas, right? So not only with respect to punishments, but also parole and... Deportation, disenfranchisement of people with felony convictions. There are all kinds of um, ways in which the law distinguishes between violent offenses and nonviolent offenses. And that, by the way, is relatively new. Up until the middle of the 20th century, it was rare for the law to draw a sharp distinction between violent offenses and nonviolent offenses. Sometimes the law distinguished between felony convictions and misdemeanor convictions or between crimes that were considered super serious and crimes that were considered less serious. The law had all kinds of synonyms for serious, but none of those tracked the distinction between violent and nonviolent offenses. Now, the boundary between violent and nonviolent, it seems to have morphed over time to try and become more aligned with serious versus non-serious. And so things that we think are serious but are nonviolent are defined as being violent, (laughs) and things that may be violent but which we don't think of as serious, we kind of just define them as nonviolent, right? I mean, so it's become more of a normative category than a positive one. I mean, I was surprised to see that, you know, various... For instance, possession of child pornography is considered a violent offense in some jurisdictions. And I guess burglary has always been considered a violent transgression. And that to me is a little surprising because is it violence against property? I mean, why would we consider burglary to be violent? And why would we consider possession of child pornography to be violent? Yeah. So those are great questions. And what's happened in the law is the same thing that's happened in everyday discourse. Once you say that there's some category of criminal activity that's categorically worse, that it's super serious, that this is the really bad stuff, then there is an effort to squeeze into that category anything that people think need to be treated seriously. So outside the law and everyday discourse, people will talk about systemic violence or the violence of environmental degradation, the slow violence of toxic chemicals put into our rivers and oceans. People talk about emotional violence or symbolic violence. And those are all ways of saying, what I'm talking about here is really serious and really bad. It's just as bad, if not worse, than things that you might think of as paradigmatically violent, an armed robbery or hitting somebody in a bar fight. And that happens in the law too. And it it started happening in the middle of the 20th century when legal codes, both at the federal and the state level, started to say, 
that there are particular consequences to being convicted of a violent offense. So once that happened, legislatures had to define what counted as a violent offense. And sometimes they would create lists. Sometimes they would create a general standard that courts then had to apply. But either way, there had to be the determination of whether this crime or that crime counted as violent for purposes of all these special consequences that get laid it on to the punishment and the sanctions for violent offenses. So with burglary, for example, there's long been a desire to include burglary in the category of super serious offenses. And initially, when this was done at the federal level, it was done by creating a category of career criminals. And career criminals were defined to be people who had convictions for armed robbery or burglary. And the thinking there was that people who get convicted multiple times for burglary or armed robbery are likely to be doing this as their career. And they're different from the kinds of people who get arrested for other offenses in this way. Once Congress decided that what it really wanted to focus on for super serious punishment was violent criminals, then they had to figure out, well, how do we deal with armed robbery? Sure, that's violent. But what about burglary? So it was kind of Congress reverse engineered this and said, well, burglary obviously is violent. And the general explanation that's been given for that, both by Congress and by courts, is that a burglary creates the potential for violence. Even if somebody breaks into a building where nobody lives, or even when somebody breaks into a building where nobody else is present at the moment, even when somebody breaks into a building without carrying any weapons, there's always the danger that they'll encounter somebody. And then there'll be a violent interaction. And that's often treated as the explanation for why we treat burglary as a violent offense. But of course, there are lots of things that run the risk of creating a violent encounter. And we don't normally describe those things as themselves violent. But we do that with burglary. And the reason we do it is because of the desire to include burglary in this category of violent offenses. The same thing has happened with a lot of sexual offenses, like possession of child pornography. One way that legislatures have dealt with making sure that those crimes get the super serious sanctions that are set aside for violent offenses is by just saying, we're going to call this violent. Another way is some states have said, well, we'll change the category that gets the super serious sanctions. And we'll say those super serious sanctions are reserved not just for violent offenses, but for violent or sexual offenses. Decades ago, something similar happened with drug offenses. So there are some states that will say these super serious sanctions are reserved for violent offenses and narcotics dealing. More recently, it's been more common to say these super serious sanctions are, are reserved for violent offenses or for sexual offenses, or simply saying that they're reserved for violent offenses and we'll just define things like possession of child pornography as violent. And when that gets challenged, it helps 
that classification that the same kind of reclassification happens in ordinary language. So if some state legislature is challenged with the assertion that we should treat child pornography as violent, the legislator will say something like, well, I think it is violent. It's a serious kind of violence. It does violence to all of our standards of decency. It victimizes the children that are depicted. It runs the risk of encouraging assault and violation of other children. So it's not hard to use everyday language to explain why anything we treat think is very serious is violent too. Yeah, it'd be interesting to get a better understanding of whether it's the culture that's driving the law or the law that's driving the culture. I mean, there's clearly some feedback across these different domains. Yeah, I think it absolutely happens both ways. The law draws on popular ideas about violence, but the law also clearly reinforces those ideas by treating violence as a formal category and a category that has clear boundaries. Now, what I find interesting is that this idea that it's the violent crimes that are the most serious ones, we haven't always thought that. He reminded me that Dante right, would put the violent folks in a slightly higher rung of hell than those engaged in fraud and deceit. And I think there are other jurists, Jeremy Bentham and a bunch of others, that really their distinction was between sort of premeditated versus more spontaneous. And a lot of the violent crimes are spontaneous, come about as a result of, you know, brawls and fights and breaches of one's honor or jealousy or something like that. And so I think for a lot of folks, historically, they thought that you needed more severe sanctions against the things that were done as a result of planning and deliberation. Yeah, that's something that surprised me when I was researching the book. I expected to find that the definition of violence has shifted over time. But I also thought that this idea that violence is a separate category and that's a logical way to try to carve out the most serious offenses, I thought that was a very old idea. And it turns out not to be. I want to be clear. People have always thought that murder is a particularly serious crime. People have always thought that rape is a particularly serious crime. But the idea that you can carve out a category called violent offenses, and that is categorically worse, is not an old idea. People have been categorizing crimes for centuries. There have been criminal codes that separate out serious from less serious offenses. And there have been treatises that have talked about which crimes we should treat more seriously than other crimes. And lots of different categories have been used to try to give some order to the range of things that we criminalize. But up until the mid-20th century, it was rare, very rare, for anyone to say that, well, when you're trying to categorize crimes, the first and most important distinction we should draw is between violent and nonviolent offenses. And the reason that people didn't think that way was that there were a number of other axes along which they thought it was super important to distinguish crime. And these are things that we still think about when we're categorizing crimes today. It's just that they become overshadowed by violence. So one is whether the criminal act reflects some deep-seated feature of somebody's character 
or whether it's just something that happened in the heat of the moment. And there's a long tradition of treating crimes more seriously if we think that they suggest something deep-seated and permanent about somebody's character rather than something that this person did in the heat of the moment. And because lots of violent offenses have been thought to occur in the heat of the moment, they haven't been treated as seriously as other kinds of offenses like fraud that seem to require more deliberation and thought and that have been thought to reflect more about a person's deep-seated character. And it seems like our theory of human behavior in criminal law has moved more in the direction of kind of a dispositional view of people's character and less contextual. I mean, the psychologists will refer to this as the fundamental attribution error, but it seems like we talk more about criminals rather than criminal behavior. This doesn't seem to match the way in which, I guess, psychologists think about human nature. Is there some kind of divergence between the law and the social sciences? Because in the social sciences, we've definitely moved in the direction of context and situation. Yeah, I think there is a divergence, particularly with regard to violence. And as we were discussing a minute or two ago, the reason why for centuries, when people tried to categorize crimes, they didn't give a lot of salience to the line between violent and nonviolent offenses was because they cared a lot about other lines, including the line between things that people did bad that were the result of the situations in which they found themselves in and things that people did bad that just reflected a permanent, invariable feature of their character. And violence was thought to be uh, the kind of thing that often happened explosively that didn't reflect somebody's deep-seated character. People could get carried away in the heat of the moment. That was the idea. Now, I think over the last several uh, decades, the way in which the law has thought about violence has shifted. And it's become much more common in many, but not all, contexts to think about violence as something that is the result of somebody's deep-seated character and not the result of the circumstances in which they find themselves. That's why it's become common to talk about violent crimes and violent criminals interchangeably, as though if somebody's committed a violent crime, that's because they're a violent criminal. And once you start thinking that way, it becomes easier to justify all kinds of harsh treatment of people who've committed violent offenses. And I think that's happened with regard to many kinds of violence, but not all kinds of violence. It hasn't happened, for example, in the same way with regard to violent misconduct by the police, where it remains much more common for many people to think that when a police officer acts violently, that may not reflect something deep-seated about the officer's character or even about how the officer performs his or her job as a police officer. It may just reflect the circumstances in which the officer found himself or herself. And everybody thinks that way about some acts that are obviously violent. Everybody thinks that way about somebody who 
gets caught up in a bar fight, for example, or winds up in a shoving match with somebody on the sidelines of a youth soccer game. But we tend to forget that in other instances when we're talking about violent crime and violent criminals. We slip into a way of thinking that assumes that violent offenses are committed because the person who committed them is inherently violent rather than because of the circumstances in which they found themselves. And it is a good example of mental attribution error. Well, I mean, there are some contexts where we, you know, obviously do incorporate context, right? So if you watch a video of somebody tackling somebody, you would say, hey, that's pretty violent. And then you find out that they're on the football field and you tend not to use the word violent. Sometimes you'll hear commentators saying, oh yeah, that was a violent tackle. But I think we tend to avoid that terminology when we think that it's either consented to or a product of self-defense or, in other words, the backstory will tell us whether it's violent or not, even when we're looking at exactly the same physical interaction. Right. And that's another tricky thing about the category of violence and the language of violence that we sometimes use the category in ways that don't carry a moral judgment. So we will sometimes say, for example, that was a violent tackle, not meaning there was anything wrong with it. We'll say that that was justified violence. But that phrasing, justified violence, also can sound like a contradiction in terms. So we often resist talking about violence being justified because we sometimes talk as though violence is by definition unjustified. And if it is justified, it's not violent. And that increases the slipperiness of the concept. Because if we're relying on the category of violence, if we're saying, well, one thing I think is really bad is violence. And if what violence winds up meaning is physical force that we believe is morally unjustified, then we haven't said very much when we've said that we think all violence is wrong or we're against violence. Now, it seems like, you know, we don't need a whole lot of data to determine that somebody is violent. And with sex crimes, I think they're the view that people have an unalterable character seems to be particularly pronounced, right? With sex offender lists and so forth. Yeah. And I should say that I think that many of the things that I say in this book about the category of violence could also be said about the category of sex offenses. That is to say that this is another category that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's not like there's no difference between sexual offenses and non-sexual offenses. There is, just like there's a difference between things that are violent and non-violent. It's just that the category is less well-defined than we sometimes think it is. And once we begin to think of this as a natural category, anything that winds up getting included in the category gets treated as beyond the pale. I think that this all comes from a desire to try to figure out how to think about crimes. And crime is a difficult thing to figure out how to respond to. We have we always have conflicting feelings about criminal activity. We're torn in general between these instincts of understanding, contextualizing, and condemning. One tempting way to try to resolve that tension, the fundamental tension of criminal law is to say, well, there are some crimes where understanding and contextualizing is appropriate, and there are some crimes where we just need to say, well, this is just evil. 
And criminal activity doesn't work that way. And any effort to try to divide the world up cleanly that way is going to lead to lots of injustice. And that's happened with the importance that we attach to the line between violent and nonviolent crimes. And I think it's also happened to some extent with the line that more recently has been drawn between sexual and non-sexual offenses. Now, are we defining violence downward, so to speak? Certainly when people say that speech is violent or something like that, I think it's very important to acknowledge that words can hurt just as much as sticks and stones, right? I mean, you know, kids make that distinction. Increasingly, we're kind of blurring that distinction, but doesn't that serve an important purpose? Maybe you could make the case that we should just abolish this distinction altogether and just focus on the gravity of the harm, right? So if something is more harmful, it then should get more punishment. And if it's less harmful, it should get less punishment and then just abolish this entire distinction. I mean, what's the argument in favor of maintaining a distinction between violent and nonviolent offenses? Well, the argument is that there is something different and it's hard to draw the line with precision. But the general idea that there's something different and distinctive about violations of the law that have to do with exercising physical force against a person, I think makes sense that those crimes do have a different character. They're not across the board more serious. And there are some crimes that, I mean, when I talk about this book with people, even lawyers or law professors, people sometimes say, well, it's just obviously true that violent crimes are the worst crimes. But if you push them even a little, it becomes clear that they don't think that because no one thinks that low-level assaults are among the very worst crimes. So the law defines assault to mean any unwanted touching of another person's body. So if I shove you on the sideline of a youth soccer game, that's an assault. But nobody thinks that that's the kind of crime for which somebody deserves to go to prison for a long time. And when I say nobody thinks that, if you look at state criminal codes, state criminal codes often distinguish between violent and nonviolent offenses, and they will reserve the super serious consequences for violent offenses. But almost always, they say that the super serious consequences are reserved for violent felonies. And that's because the legislature wants to have the ability to say that there are some things that are violent that we're not going to treat as so serious. Those are violent misdemeanors. And for assaults, the law distinguishes between aggravated assault, which is almost always treated as a felony and a super serious crime, and simple assault, which is just a misdemeanor and doesn't get treated particularly seriously. And the line between aggravated assault and simple assault is remarkably fuzzy. I love how your fist can be a deadly weapon. <laughs> like, under what circumstances is it considered a deadly weapon? I mean, if your fist is a deadly weapon, then I don't understand how you can actually have any kind of assault <laughs> that doesn't include a deadly weapon. Okay, so we need to step back for a second and talk about why we're talking about deadly weapons to begin with. And the reason is that legislatures and courts want to treat violence as categorically worse. So they set up this category of violent crimes, but there's this vast category of things that are treated as criminal 
that nobody wants to put in the category of super serious. And those are like shoving somebody during a verbal altercation. So the way we deal with that is by saying, okay, well, that's just a simple assault and only aggravated assault counts as a felony. And so only aggravated assault is going to be in this super serious category. So then what's the difference between aggravated and a simple assault? And the law differs a little from state to state. But by and large, the distinction is a aggravated assault is an assault that employs a deadly weapon or that causes or threatens serious bodily harm. So once you say, that, okay, well, those are the lines, then you got to figure out what those lines mean. And let's say we say, okay, well, if you use a deadly weapon, that's a, an aggravated assault. So you might think, okay, so that means a gun or something. But then some case comes along where somebody who's a prize fighter or trained in advanced martial arts just uses his hands or his feet against somebody else and almost kills them. And the instinctive reaction is, okay, well, that's an aggravated assault. But if we've defined aggravated assault to mean an assault that uses a deadly weapon, then we got to figure out what the deadly weapon is here. And it's relatively, it's easy for a court to say, well, a deadly weapon is a weapon you could kill somebody with. And if you're trained, if you're a prize fighter or you're trained in martial arts, then of course your feet or your hands are deadly weapons. The other way you could get around uh, this problem is by saying, well, okay, so that wasn't, you didn't use a deadly weapon there, but you did cause or threaten serious bodily harm. The problem is that we then run into similar problems about what counts as serious bodily harm. And courts are all over the map about this as well. The upshot is that there is a vast difference in the law between a simple assault and an aggravated assault. In most states, a simple assault will land you in jail at most for a month or two, and probably not even that. Whereas an aggravated assault can send you to prison for more than a decade. So it's a huge difference. And the difference depends on whether we, the courts, think that the assault should be thought of as one involving deadly weapons or one involving serious bodily harm. And that's a highly subjective, very vague set of lines. Now, you've pointed out there's this big divergence between criminal law and criminal procedure. So in criminal law, this distinction between violent and nonviolent is very salient, very important, has huge impact on the severity of the punishment. But in criminal procedure, the big distinction has to do with kind of invasions of privacy. And we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about violence. And to the extent that we do, there's sort of a, like a continuum with respect to the way police engage with citizenry. So why this divergence? I mean, these are the same people who do criminal law and criminal procedure, you know, and then do they feel some inconsistency here when they're looking at the behavior of the criminals and the behavior of the police? Some of them do. I mean, I'm one of those people and I feel the inconsistency and I'm not alone. Other people have remarked on this, other law professors who teach criminal procedure, which is the set of rules that govern the police and criminal law. I should make clear that criminal law does apply to police officers. You can get prosecuted for assault or for homicide. If you're a police officer and you use force and kill somebody, 
without justification. And that's happening more often now, although it's still relatively rare compared to the number of occasions in which officers kill someone. On the other hand, the set of rules that are applied to police officers every day to try to figure out whether what they've done is lawful and whether they should be reprimanded doesn't draw as nearly that sharp distinction that we draw in criminal law between violent and nonviolent offenses. So criminal procedure is, by and large, a set of constitutional rules that govern what the police can do when they're patrolling or investigating. Courts spend a lot of time figuring out exactly what the line is between lawful and unlawful policing. But the vast majority of that time is spent trying to figure out when the police are exceeding their legitimate ability to invade privacy, as you say. So there are we have very detailed rules about when the police are allowed to order me to stop, when the police are allowed to search my pockets or my briefcase or my phone. But we don't have very detailed rules about when the police are allowed to throw me up against a wall or throw me down against the ground. And in fact, the rules for the police grabbing me and throwing me against the wall are largely the same as the rules for when the police are allowed to order me to stop. They're not entirely the same. If the police use force against me in the course of getting me to stop, for example, it has to be reasonable. But that's a very vague standard. And we don't rely on standards that vague when we're figuring out when the police are allowed to look in my pockets or look in my briefcase. But we do in trying to figure out when the police are allowed to throw me against a wall or let's take a house search. So we have very detailed rules about when the police are allowed to come into my house without my permission. But for the most part, those rules don't distinguish between the police knocking on my door and ordering me to let them in on the one hand, and the police taking a battering ram, coming into my house with guns drawn, throwing me against the floor, tying my hands behind my back. I mean, those differences are just addressed on an ad hoc basis. And that's true not just about the rules of criminal procedure, which courts apply. It's also true for the most part with regard to the rules that police departments use internally when they're deciding whether an officer should be disciplined for improper use of force. What most police departments say is there is a spectrum that starts with a voluntary encounter and ends with the police using lethal force against somebody, like shooting them. And the police need to have justification for every move they make along this spectrum. But the whole idea that there's a spectrum is a way of saying that there's no sharp line, that it's all a matter of context, and that it doesn't make sense to say that violent police activity is a category apart, which is very different from how we treat criminal activity, where we do treat violent criminal activity as a category apart. My view is we do that to excess in criminal law, 
But with regard to the police, we don't do it enough. We don't pay enough attention to the ways in which violent police misconduct is a different kind of thing than other kinds of police misconduct. Now, you talk a bit in the book about these stand your ground laws or make my day laws. And, you know, to some extent, these laws don't do much, right, to change the law, but they're very symbolic. And they seem to be saying that the common law principle of duty to retreat is something that we no longer have to adhere to. And so, first of all, how do you explain this sort of culturally and sociologically? And this idea of duty to retreat, it seems to be a duty that applies to civilians only, right? So law enforcement, police officers, there may be all sorts of situations where they could probably do the least amount of harm by pausing, waiting, retreating, and yet they don't have any duty to do so. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So let me talk about police officers first and then talk about the duty to retreat in criminal law more generally. So we have a terrible problem of police killings in this country. Every year, about a thousand people are killed by the police. And the rate of police killings is far higher than in any other democracy that we'd want to compare ourselves to. It's vastly higher than the rate in any European country or Great Britain, Canada, Australia. And one reason for that is that we have a lot more guns in this country. So it is more dangerous to be a police officer in this country than it is in most parts of Western Europe or the United Kingdom. So police officers are genuinely put in danger more often in the United States, and they have legitimate reason to be fearful and to use their weapons more often than in other countries. But that doesn't explain the full disparity between killings here and killings in other countries. And the easiest way to see that is with regard to killings by police officers of civilians who the police know are not armed or don't believe are armed. This is about 10% of police killings in this country every year. Or armed with knives, right? Or other... Or armed with knives, yes. That don't have a gun. So every year, about 100 people are killed by the police in the United States in situations where the police do not believe that this person has a gun and the person doesn't have a gun. Often they have a knife. There are often people suffering mental health distress. They are acting in ways that seem scary. And these situations arise in other countries too. People act in scary ways. People have mental health distress. There are people with knives who are acting in scary ways. But they almost never wind up getting killed by the police. And they almost never kill the police. They almost never kill the police here either. All police officers are almost never fatally injured by anything other than a gun, any other weapon. So the reason why we have vastly more people without guns who are wind up getting killed by the police in this country than in other countries is that we don't train the police to de-escalate. What happens in other countries if somebody is waving a knife around and acting crazy is that the police will set up a, some sort of a perimeter and try to wait the person out, making sure that nobody is endangered. Here, we, that doesn't happen. Often it doesn't happen because lots of police officers are trained 
that once somebody with a knife gets within 21 feet of them, they're not going to have time to draw their weapon before that person gets to them if they let them come any further, which there's absolutely no evidence for this. It's a kind of a folktale of policing. Officers in other countries are never told this, but many officers in the United States are. And for this reason, and because we just don't train police officers to de-escalate the way they're trained in other countries, lots of people get killed that don't need to be killed. So that's the story about the failure to require police to retreat or de-escalate when that's the safest course. The story outside of policing is that there's been a long legal debate about the circumstances in which somebody needs to retreat rather than to defend themselves against lethal force. And the old rule in England, and it's still the rule in England, was that if you can avoid a violent confrontation by retreating, you need to do that. You can't shoot somebody or stab them instead of safely retreating. Now, this only applies when you can safely retreat. If it's going to put you in danger to try to retreat, you don't have to do it. But if you can safely avoid the confrontation, you have to do that rather than take somebody's life. In the United States, some states have had that rule. Other states have had what they call the true man rule, which is you don't have to retreat because a true man wouldn't retreat. These stand your ground laws are, in effect, ways of resurrecting the true man rule, which had been waning in most parts of the United States, and saying, no, we think that's right. In certain circumstances, you shouldn't have to retreat. And the laws differ from state to state. But they all reflect this idea that the law had previously put people in danger by requiring them to retreat when that was dangerous for them, which was never true. There's never been a jurisdiction in the United States that has said that if you're attacked, you need to retreat, even if doing that puts you in danger. But the rhetoric behind a lot of these stand your ground laws was we don't want to put people in the danger that they'll be in if they have to retreat. And that was linked up with an idea that people should be able to stand up for themselves and criminals shouldn't be getting away with what they're getting away with. So these laws were sometimes called make my day laws because they appealed to the character of Dirty Harry the violent police officer played by Clint Eastwood, who acted as a kind of vigilante. These laws, for the most part, do not significantly change the legal rules under which most violent encounters will be adjudicated, but they do have tremendous symbolic value. They do communicate to people that you don't have to wait, you don't have to retreat, if somebody's on your property who doesn't belong there, you can just kill them. And unfortunately, a lot of people have heard that message. So it's another example of the ways in which our language around violence is manipulable and does get manipulated. So the same people who will say in one breath, I'm against violence, will say in the next breath, well, but I think you should be able to stand your ground if somebody's coming onto your property illegally or who you think is coming onto your property illegally. Now, on the big picture, the number of people who are incarcerated is 
dramatically higher than it has been in the past. It, we have not always had these kinds of numbers. I think some people think that America has always had a very punitive judicial system, but America has always been violent, right? <laughs> so, I mean, can, how do we explain this massive run-up in incarceration in the 80s? I mean, there was, to some degree, a rise in kind of violent crime, I guess, in the 1960s that seemed to be measured. I don't know if that's an artifact of the data or not. The decline in that violence has not been matched by a decline in incarceration. So just how do we explain that? I mean, is it just a product of a very specific moment in American history, or has there been a shift in how we think about violence? Also, I think you referred to sort of there's a racial story here that can't be ignored. How do we explain this? And why hasn't this same trend been apparent in other developed countries who are presumably experiencing similar economic trends and sociological trends and cultural trends? Those are great questions. So it's true that something changed significantly in the 1970s and 1980s in the way in which we incarcerate people in the United States. For decades before then, the incarceration rate in the United States had stayed largely constant, even when crime rates changed. And not only that, but the incarceration rate in the United States was very similar to the incarceration rate in Canada, in Australia, in England, Scotland, Ireland, Western Europe. And then in the 1970s and 1980s, the incarceration rate began to climb. And it climbed because more people were being prosecuted and because we enacted laws requiring long mandatory sentences and because we cut back on possibilities for early release through probation or parole or through pardons or commutations. So it was a, a number of legal things that came together to increase the number of people who were in prison. And it wasn't accidental. There was a politics around getting tough on crime that produced bipartisan consensuses for lengthy, mandatory prison terms for a whole range of offenses, especially violent offenses and offenses involving drug trafficking. And I think a lot of things drove this. Part of it was there was an increase in crime, and particularly in violent crime, in the 1960s and 1970s. And that increase was particularly pronounced in major cities like New York and Chicago. And it led to a sense that things were unraveling. And that sense of things unraveling was also produced by other things that were going on in the 1960s and 1970s. It was a time of social tumult. There was an increase in urban disturbances. There were riots in major American cities, hundreds of American cities in the late 1960s. And there were riots in prisons at a rate much higher than we had seen ever before in the United States. There was the controversy about the war in Vietnam. There was social upheaval around social mores about sex, sexual roles, authority. So there was a general sense of things unraveling. There was a politics of crime that developed that Democrats and Republicans both joined into. And it created 
consensus. There was a, a long period during which Republicans and Democrats essentially competed to see who could propose the most draconian sentences, who could propose the harshest criminal laws. When Congress, for example, enacted a law that imposed five-year and 10-year mandatory minimum sentences for drug dealing, a question arose during the crack epidemic of the 1980s of how much crack you should need to have in order to qualify for those sentences. And Democrats and Republicans kept trying to outbid each other in terms of the harshness of the law that they proposed. And finally, Democrats won. Democrats said that an ounce of crack cocaine should be treated as seriously as 100 ounces of powder cocaine. And nobody was willing to go beyond that. That seemed crazy enough. And that kind of dynamic operated with other laws as well. So there was just a politics around this. And in the 1990s, when crime began to fall precipitously, and violent crime in particular began to fall precipitously, and violent crime in major cities, particularly New York City, fell especially fast, all the laws that had been adopted to toughen punishments by and large remained on the books because it became harder to unwind that than to wind it up. It's harder for politicians to campaign on a platform of, we need to lower penalties than it had been the campaign on the platform of we need to raise penalties. Now, the book is explicitly only about American law, but it would be interesting to get an understanding of why we don't see the same trends happening in other countries that experienced other forms of unraveling, certainly protests in 1960s in France and so forth, and the rise in crime in UK and other kind of common law countries don't seem to have resulted in similar responses. So I guess I'd love to learn more about that and whether you know, these other countries have a shared experience around their understanding of violence and whether the understanding of what violence means has evolved similarly in those other countries. Well, I, I don't know for sure why you haven't seen the same thing in other countries, but I have some ideas. So first of all, there absolutely was a racial dynamic to the escalation of penalties beginning in the late 1960s and into the 1970s. And part of that was that although we had had episodes of escalated urban violence in the United States before the 1960s, in the 1960s, the demographics of cities had changed. And many American cities had areas of concentrated poverty that were disproportionately populated by people of color, particularly African-Americans. And those neighborhoods bore the brunt of violent crime, which means that a disproportionate number of victims of violent crime were African-American, but also a disproportionate number of people who were arrested and prosecuted for violent crime were African-Americans. And it gave violence a racialized face. And once the picture of the violent criminal became racialized, it changed the way people tended to talk about violent crime. I think that's an important part of why the shift has occurred in the way we think about violence, why we've tended now to think about violence as characterological instead of situational. It's because it's easier for white people in particular to think that way when their picture of somebody who's violent is a picture of somebody with dark skin. Now, those racial dynamics 
operated in other countries as well, but they did not operate in quite the same way. And in many cases, they didn't operate as poisonously. So that's one explanation for why things happen differently in other countries. I think, though, part of it is that the law accelerated the process here by creating this sharp distinction between violent and nonviolent offenses. And again, it's not that nobody talks about violence in the UK or Europe. It's that it's talked about in a different way. So in the United Kingdom, for example, there is lots of talk about serious violence. So there'll be parliamentary reports about the problem of serious violence. And it may seem like that's not a big deal to talk about serious violence rather than violence, but I think it is. Because the thing about the language of serious violence is it wears its ambiguity or its subjectivity or its vagueness on its sleeve. Nobody imagines that the line between serious and non-serious violence is clear and sharp. The very language makes it obvious that we're going to have to draw a distinction. We don't know exactly where the line is. But when we talk about violent versus nonviolent offenses, it's easy, it's natural, and it's common to think that there's a sharp line here and that anybody who's convicted of a violent offense is obviously and categorically worse. And that has huge consequences. Let me, I'll give you just one example. During the COVID-19 pandemic, it became obvious early on that jails and prisons were particularly dangerous vectors of transmission for this disease. It was obvious that having people in cells in close proximity was a recipe for allowing this virus to spread. And it was obvious that any spread that happened inside a carceral institution could then wind up contributing to spread outside the walls of that institution because people are released from jails, people are released from prisons. So people were suggesting early on during the COVID-19 pandemic that this would be a really good time for us to think about releasing people from prisons and jails who don't need to be there. And by the time the COVID-19 pandemic had arisen, there was widespread recognition among many, many people in this country that way too many people were behind bars. So you would think that this was a perfect opportunity for us to release a lot of the people who didn't need to be in prison or jail. But what happened was even Democratic governors like Gavin Newsom, who had campaigned partly on a platform of criminal justice reform and addressing mass incarceration, even governors like Gavin Newsom said, well, we have to draw the line at violent offenses. People who were convicted of nonviolent offenses, sure, if it turns out we can release them from prison or jail, let's do that as a way of arresting the spread of this virus. But we're not going to release anyone from prison or jail early who was convicted of a violent offense. So what made that seem natural was the idea that that's a clear boundary. Whereas if Gavin Newsom had to use the language of serious violence, that would naturally have led to the question of whether in an individual case, we were talking about somebody who had committed serious violence. When you talk about violence, 
It makes it sound like that's just a natural category. And when the state has laws on the books that say, well, burglary is by definition a violent offense, that means that no burglar, nobody's convicted of burglary, is going to be released from jail or prison early in an effort to prevent the spread of COVID-19, which was a, a position that I think was impossible to defend on any reason basis. And I think you also quote Bill de Blasio and Kamala Harris also saying that they would draw a line in the sand at violent crimes with respect to reform. It's very common because um, it's difficult in our political culture for, for people to say, well, even some violent offenses may deserve to be treated more leniently than we treated them. Why is that a third rail politically? Because we've created this category of violence and treated it as though it's obvious and categorically worse and beyond the pale than other offenses. Well, David, there's a lot of other interesting stuff that we didn't get to talk about. For instance, juvenile crime, rape, and uh, prison violence. There's a lot in this book. And I understand you have a new book coming out. Tell me a bit about the new book. So... I just sent this off to my editor this morning, so it's going to be a while before it sees the light of day. But it's a book about a problem I've been thinking about for some time now, which is how we approach criminal justice in a time of polarization and exclusionary forms of populism. So it's an effort to think through how we can sensibly reform criminal law in ways that bridge differences rather than exacerbate them, and how we can adopt criminal justice policies that will strengthen democracy rather than eroding it. Well, I certainly look forward to uh, getting my hands on that book. It's been great chatting. Hope to chat again soon. It's been very nice talking to you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.